it's it's appealing to say that you shouldn't that maybe we don't want to have government simply allocating spectrum mm. willy nilly uh, to oh you get some and, and you get some to corruption or, but, or misguided. But, but to then say uh, we should do the same for deciding between Wi-Fi and uh, um, cellular, that, that I think is a, is a big problem because of this con- – the, 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 the likely incapacity of uh, so many disaggregated users to come together and form a bidding coalition that yeah. could seriously take on uh, mobile. Um, and I think, I think it's pretty unlikely that a coalition could be formed. <laughs> And so the key point is that even if the value to that coalition is in the end going to be higher than the value to mobile, mobile would have a likely win in the auction simply because of the difficulty of bringing together the I think that's undeniable. Hello and welcome to another telecoms.com podcast. I'm delighted to say we've got another special guest this week. First time podder with Sean Ennis, Professor Sean Ennis. You're a professor from the University of East Anglia, professor in competition policy, is that right? That's correct. Right. Cool. Well, I, as I was just saying a minute ago, I, I'm sort of got to sort of dweebishly acknowledge that I find competition policy quite interesting. Um, part of the reason being you can't be a sort of pro-free market small government kind of person and then not be in favour of quite efficient, robust <laughs> regulation. Because, um, yeah, oh, good timing. Sorry. Thanks, Ian. Sorry. That's Ian, by the way, everyone. Um, uh, and not be in favour... Yeah, thanks, thanks for not introducing me. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. It occurs to me. I listen to other podcasts. They're much more professional and, and they reintroduce their co-host all the time and I never bother doing it. And, and I don't even give light reading. It's one little shout-out. He does get a caption, though, doesn't he? Pierre? Yeah, yeah. Do I? So yeah, you get most people listen. So that's true. So yeah, yeah well, so so that that coughing weirdo was Ian from Light Reading, who's my co-host, our co-host, whatever. Um, uh, yeah, you know, a completely unfettered, unbridled, unmonitored free market is always going to gravitate towards monopolies because the big companies are going to swallow up the little companies, and then they'll start misbehaving. And acting ways to sort of skew the free market. So you obviously have to have a regular. And sometimes people misunderstand that. They go, oh, I thought you were all free market. How come you're in favor of this regulation? But there's no contradiction there at all as far as I'm concerned. No, no. De- de- the deregulation movement was, I think, uh, properly uh, construed is, is not about eliminating regulation, but changing regulation. Yeah. Right. Totally. Yeah. So, so we'll get. Oh, and I should give you. I haven't got a copy, so I'll do. I'll do it for you. This is a rare time where we've actually got someone who's got a book out on the pod. I feel like a proper podcast. <laughs> so, uh, so Sean's got a book out called Internet Empire Subhead: The Hidden Digital War. Uh, how did we get here? Where do we go? What do we do now? So, we'll get into that in a sec, among other things. Um, what else are I going to talk about? Oh, yeah, just one little bit of bullshit. So we've got a hard cut-off again this time because uh, Ian's got to interview someone, haven't you? Mm-hmm. So um, so I'm going to try and keep the bullshit to a minimum. I think I did all right last week, keeping the bullshit to a minimum, but we did go off on a little yeah, bit of tangent. we've got plenty of time. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're quite early starting. I know, but it's amazing that ever since I said I'm going to try and keep it to an hour and a half, I'm still getting like two hours, even when I think I'm being time-disciplined mm-hmm. at the moment. So yeah. there we are. Um, <coughs> just one thing I will say... So, uh, Sean hasn't brought any beers, and that's fine. That's allowed, um, if slightly frowned upon. <laughs> um, but uh, And so I'd normally get our guest a, a glass of water because we're banging on for a couple of hours. But our, in, in, in former towers here, we've got this water tap, and for some reason it's run off a little smartphone that's just planted 
uh, on a stand next to it. A smartphone that's, you know, that's got this processor that could send a rocket to the moon, mm -hmm. and it's got to basically have an app that's got four buttons on it for cold, hot, and big glass and little glass. Fizzy. Oh, is it fizzy? Right, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and, you know, why they can't just be buttons or, or something less sophisticated than the smartphone, I don't know. Just a valve. Um, but anyway, it turns out this smartphone's busted now. It can't even do that. I don't, I don't even like those in coffee shops now. You know, you go into, uh, where is it? The Black Sheep Coffee, I think. You can't right. order from people anymore. You can't just tell someone what you want. You have to go in and use a, a giant touch Yeah, screen. that's the same as avocado where I get my lunch. And yet, there's, yeah, avocado is yeah. the same. But there's people there anyway. So you could just say, can I have a flat yeah. white? Instead and, of going, nah. and you can't just press flat white. You've got to go through several yeah. screens. And it's got to ask you whether you've got a loyalty card. And yeah, they're trying and to push got a membership on, on it, it so it doesn't work. And yeah, I mean, it's unnecessary. I know. And on that road, I was moaning about, oh, if we got, the lifts here are use a touchscreen rather than old-fashioned buttons, and the touchscreen's not very responsive. Yeah. So this, this is bringing out the sort of rampant Luddite in me. What's wrong with buttons? <laughs> Sometimes less is more. Yeah. I mean, this this might be a, a quite a natural segue actually into um into your book, Sean, because you know the, the broader topic is is tech, you know, tech permeating everything. And there's a part of me, you know, I'm the wrong side of fifty. It's part of me that increasingly hankers after a sort of analog as opposed to digital world. Um, but um, so you you call it Internet Empire, the hidden digital war, and it's in sort of yellow and red. It's and it's got a it's got a diagram of a bomb on it. Is that a bomb, old fashioned bomb? What is that? This is a digital bomb. A digital bomb. There we are. I was just making sure it was one of those like Tom and Jerry, those round <laughs> black bombs with a fuse in it. Exactly right. Um, and so it sounds like you're hostile to this Internet Empire, but I presume it's a bit more nuanced than that. So I'll hand over to you. Why don't you tell us what the sort of overarching premise of your book is? Yeah. Well, the, maybe the the first point I'd make is, is that it's, it's not hostile uh, to, to what the internet companies have been doing. And, and really, I, my uh, argument would be they've created enormous benefits yeah. overall for society for, in lots of different ways. That so we're talking about like Google, Amazon, Apple, these sorts of companies. And a thousand others, right? Right. Yeah. Really, I would, I would broaden it out to the whole universe. Okay. I think it's... Um, there's in the regulatory sphere, especially a high focus on these large companies, but um, but that I think is uh, is a bit distortive. Um, if you if you're going to be a competition policy wonk, you might say that uh, that what what matters is the behaviors of companies, whether they're in a small sector or a big sector. And so if 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 you have the company in the big sector doing something that's very similar to what the company in the small sector is doing, you'd think if it's illegal in one, it should be illegal in the other. But mm -hmm. that's not the way the regulation has really been going, um, at least in Europe. And No, and I have, I have some... Sorry to sorry to butt yeah. in, and this may be where you're headed, but I do have a feeling with regulation that once a company reaches a certain size, it's necessarily a different set of weights and measures applied to them because everything they do necessarily distorts the market by, by their sheer size. Well, if it, it depends, I, I would say look at the look at the size of the sector. If if you have a company with seventy percent uh, of the deliveries of truck tires, uh, compared to another company with a fifty percent delivery of restaurant meals, I mean, which which is the bigger problem? I, I, it's not an obvious yeah. um, answer to, to to my mind. You, there may be if if there were consumer harm of equal levels in each you know in each side then maybe you'd be more concerned about uh what's going on with restaurant deliveries 
but but on a matter of principle, I'm not sure that's okay, the case. Okay, fair enough. No, so so what enough. what's what's what the book is suggesting is that um, almost by accident, um, a uh, internet companies have been remarkably successful. I mean, if it weren't an accident, then we would have known a long time ago how much their true uh, stock market value should be, right? We, when when they were when they first went public, everyone the the market value yeah. of that stock should have gone to the current value. Nobody knew. Yeah, Nobody no. knew what was going to happen. We have to admit that. Um, and they've created uh, the, the the ones that are large now, and the ones that aren't so large have created um, enormous possibilities. Uh, but but it's it's become. Uh, in effect, a takeover of economic activity, almost by accident, by companies that are primarily based in one country, and um, and and where really they're they're earning a lot of profits uh, individually as companies, and are almost uh, a bit like a commercial empire of the past. So many many uh, in in terms of the economic effects, but that that result has been achieved without. Uh, without war, without the horrendous consequences of war, and so so it's it seems much less objectionable. But if you look back at the history of many wars, many a, a lot of empire building is all about economics. It's about yeah. it's about whether it pays off to expand or not, and and that's very similar to what's been going on with the internet. And so the the observation is not only have uh, the companies benefited, and, and but also the the government of the United States has benefited uh, to some substantial extent from from tax revenues that are generated. And it's not just tax on company profits or capital gains; it's also tax on personal income of people working in those companies yeah. who, who are primarily based in the U.S. And so, then there's obviously quite. There's quite often we get these stories about how little tax Amazon or Apple pays. Outside of the U.S., because they've got clever ways of. But I think what's underemphasized is that the U.S. criticizes them for not paying very much tax as well. Right. Some, some of these companies, and so they're they're kind of on the defensive all the way around. They're doing what all normal multinational companies would do, which is trying to get uh, good accountants, you know, and get, tax lawyers, trying trying to to pay what they need to pay, be legal, uh, but yeah. otherwise not pay more than they need to. I mean, who would do that? I know. I always find that funny when when sometimes. And sometimes people have a go, and I'm like, "What? Well, so do you pay a bit extra?" Like when you know, when when the sort of end of January comes along, do you go, "Here you go, here you go, tax man, have another grand. You've done a great job." <coughs> no one ever does that, do they? Um, but but then again, I can see the the more sort of popular argument whereby if they're so efficient that someone like Amazon is, is turning over billions of, of dollars in the UK and paying fuck all tax. Yes. Then it's easy to feel resentful. So if you if you look back at the history of of empires, you'd see uh, that there were empires where there were commercial companies who were given very specific tasks, um, and who who took really large shares of markets and generated a lot of profits, and. And that wasn't uh, necessarily the country taking over another. Uh, country, mm. it often turned into that, uh, but it didn't necessarily start out that way. Well, the British yeah. Empire is often quite a good example of that because I think people underestimate how much of the British Empire, in, in its pomp, like two hundred years ago or whatever, um, wasn't arrived at by brute force. Right? Yeah, there would be a bit gunboat boat diplomacy, and we'd send the lads in every now and then if there's an uprising. But a lot of it was like East India Company type of more trade and culture exchange. And and so uh, what what you could say now is that our the economies have changed dramatically in their 
uh, allocation of goods between physical goods and service goods, right? And and what has um, that that change has really enabled, I would say, this this uh, this international um, acquisition of, of economic uh, heft uh, because it makes it so much easier uh, to actually do transactions for people. Uh, Fifty years ago, you couldn't have a company from another country doing your transactions for you, but now basically you can. And and in all sorts of areas of life, whether it's what you eat or, or what you mm. what you read, um, what you what you, you know the sh- the chairs that we're sitting on, you c- you can now uh, obtain so much f- from these intermediaries that um, that really they've they're they're not just um, local anymore. They can be from another place, and it it it's kind of curious if yeah. if you look at it that. Um, that the U.S. has been so successful in this regards, and I don't think it's it's an accident. I think it's because the U.S. has had a lot better policies right. than uh, than Europe, let's say, in terms of helping its companies to prosper and succeed. I'm sure I mean, that's if, true. And if you think of venture capital developments in um, in the U.K. Or, or other parts of Europe, often the ambition is, oh, we'll start up a new company and then we'll sell it. Well, that's not necessarily the way U.S. Um, enterprises are thinking, they're they're thinking. Oh, we'll we'll try to expand and we'll we'll create a broad mm. uh, product that operates in m- many places. And maybe our exit will be IPO and, rather and, than selling. You know, and we have we have finan- we have uh, a financial uh, network that will help us to do that. And and here there's been much more willingness. To, to sell out continuously. So well, I wonder so, if even that's changed now with yep. uh, with, with, with the trend you've you've you know yep. sort of um, noted with the emergence of these big tech companies in the US. They they're very acquisitive or have been some of them in recent years. And I, mean, I have I have heard it said to me that it's if you're a startup these days, the light the, there's a stronger likelihood that one of those companies is going to come along and buy you rather than you becoming the next Google. You yep. know, it, yeah, it's like. Uh, Unless we see the emergence of another internet, something like the well, internet, one of the ways a market, in which a market that didn't exist before that somebody comes into and that they can grow and, and dominate. But it's one of the ways big companies maintain their positions by buying their their fledgling yeah. competitors. But but if, but if everything's about about the internet and um, and companies are coming along and targeting that space now as startups, then. The ch- the, the, there's very little chance they. Can yeah. be. it's like someone trying to become a an oil exploration giant with with seed funding. I suppose you could say Spotify you know, would do. be a an exception that proves the rule. They're a sort of one off of a European digital company that did that did come to dominate its space in spite of the presence. But they're of pretty Apple old. Spotify. Yeah, but great yeah. example. So so if you were to to um, be asked the question, what is the uh, position in the order of capital values of all the big digital companies in the world, where would the Which first market cap? Do you mean market cap? Market yeah. cap. What's the first entry for a European company uh, of oh. any of any kind? Yeah. Is it is it entry? Is it five? Is it is it fifteen? Oh. Is oh. it uh, twenty five? Oh. LVMH is oh, uh, no, oh, for for digital for digital, digital companies. Okay. Uh, right. Yeah. Oh yeah. So <laughs> so the answer is uh, it's. it's Spotify at 37 in the, wow. in the list right. that I saw. Yeah. So that that's amazing. That's 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 suggesting there's been a massive uh, operational uh, non-success, shall we call it, mm-hmm. in in Europe uh, as a result of uh, something. And I don't think it's 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 not 
person-based. It's not people-based. They're entrepreneurs here. They're entrepreneurs in the U.S. Many of the more ambitious entrepreneurs in Europe might choose to go to the U.S. So if you go to Silicon yeah. Valley, it's, it's full of people from other countries. And, and, uh, and so part of, part of what's going on is that the U.S. has just created a better ecosystem yeah. for creation of new value. Well, is it did? I mean, there are, there are stories now that Silicon Valley isn't what it once was for well, the, well, startups. You know, when, I, Nowhere's I, where it was for startups, though, because they're going to get snapped up. I mean, it's not a good environment anyway, arguably. For, well, uh, I mean, I think like well, California, for example, is, is, well, the is tax quite regulation mean, and tax yeah. heavy. But it still has, I, I still think that trying to upset Silicon Valley's dominance in that space is, you know, that it becomes a self-perpetuating thing. The fact that it exists and it gets bigger, it becomes even harder to challenge it. But if um, you think, yeah, but think about Silicon Valley 30 years ago. Yeah, but it was Intel what, in those what days. What were the companies then? The, the, the Intel internet XP, stuff Intel. was really it was properly, small. But it was properly uh, Silicon you know, Valley, I, wasn't I, it? When I was, <laughs> when I was, uh, I talked to uh, a venture capitalist uh, there, just as Yahoo, Yahoo, sorry, Yahoo was going public, and yeah. um, you know that was really a, uh, nobody understood how big that transition was going to be from the physical side to the uh, more virtual operating side of. of but I, but I guess even then they had it was it was Silicon Valley in those days. They had the kind of semiconductor heritage. They had Stanford University. They had VC funds in the same place. They yeah. had it's it's almost a perfect environment of very smart people from an educational background. VC Money. funds. Big, big companies on, and again, that was before the internet yeah. existed, but you had tech companies. You had some of the companies that we deal with, the likes of Lucent with probably with, with stuff that you had Intel, you had. So you had the kind of you had the human capital of the, of the internet in a way. Yeah, you had um, the human capital all in one place and really constrained. So a lot of countries have tried to duplicate Silicon yeah. Valley, right? Yeah. You have this, people saying this valley, that valley. Silicon no. Valley. Right? Yeah, in the UK, and, we have Silicon this, that, and the other. And, Silicon Fen is the main one in the UK. Silicon Roundabout, Old yeah. Street. And then yeah. if, if you, um, uh, you know, if, if you look at the relative success of all these imitations and then the, the original thing, the original thing has done yeah. really well. Yeah. Um, but an, and another thing, so you're, as, as I detect from your accent, despite living in the UK, you're American originally, yeah? And I even graduated from high school in the center of Silicon Valley. In right, Pal okay. Pal Alto. okay, so you're, you're even more qualified. Because there are a couple of other things that I think are also not just like public policy or, or structural, but cultural. So it's it's said to the point of cliche that the, that the US has a more of a sort of can do go getting ambitious attitude, whereas we've got a slight sort of dusty post post sort of colonial post sort of decline declining managed decline vibe in Europe, and then and then there's also I suppose there's a certain cultural thing about like fail fast and all that sort of thing, the way in, in which just trying trying shit out and and if not celebrating, then then accepting that failure is an intrinsic part of getting things right eventually. So there seem to be cultural advantages in the U.S. And versus Europe. That's true. And also a societal uh, reward and a positive vibe associated yeah. with, with success. It's right. much, much, than sort of much greater than don't here. Don't too big for your boots type right. of approach so, that you might have here. But do you think it's, gone, it's got to the stage now where um, trying to produce, um, uh, you know, regardless of of the silicon fens and whatever it might be and, and those ecosystems try, trying to produce a company that can take on a, a google or an amazon is just it's, it's, it's not going to be done so we we need to think about other ways of 
of dealing with them essentially we're not they, if, if a startup comes along that does something particularly innovative and that does happen as you say they get bought usually so yeah so so, um, so the, what's what's the what's the response right yeah um well it's i i we are in this is the tech world is is always changing but the the changes are often pretty pretty gradual to the extent they're predictable the major companies can can deal with that because they can they can move themselves in ways to adapt themselves to new situations. Um, some of the uh, new AI could be a little bit different in that respect because it's it's been a very fast movement. It was predicted, but pretty fast change that's happened in the last year. Yeah, we're might go right? that. Uh, but but the uh, you know what what can happen? Um, I don't think the solution is to say, all right, we're going to invest lots of money to make our own uh, mm -hmm. companies successful, because um, if if you look at the way the success has happened in in the U.S. with their companies, it was not because uh, the U.S. government was throwing money at companies. The U.S. Yeah. government did help to create the internet itself, right, in a very major way with a lot a lot of investments. So, yeah. so that's that's kind of the backup infrastructure, and then they have done an excellent job of advocating. Uh, positions internationally that help their companies. That's you know, un undoubtedly true, whether you're talking about tax or or um, international treatment or movement of data, things like that. They've done a very good job. And that's, that's maybe because uh, uh, politicians outside the U.S. haven't thought it was worth paying that much attention to some of these questions. And, uh, but, but it's also, uh, you know, what's, what's the future here is um, uh, I, you can see a strong tendency to throw money at the problem. Yep. And that's not really the solution, I would suggest. It's, it's, if you really want to create uh, companies that are like those that, that have succeeded so far in the Internet, maybe, maybe you need an innovation infrastructure that's similar yeah. to what there is there, which it's, it's, about, <laughs> it's about attracting people. It's about making sure that financial mechanisms are in place that uh, growing companies would need, but that there's a competitive allocation of that money. It's not allocated by bureaucrats. Totally. Uh, and, you can't just go around picking winners and, arbitrarily. And, and, uh, and that uh, there be regulation that's in place that would permit, uh, you know, new innovations to really mm. take off. Uh, and just one, one example might be that um, if, if, if the U.S. government gives... Uh, Gives funds and grants to uh, to universities for research. Um, it doesn't insist on a really high return to the U.S. government in case there's a commercial success, right. um, and that actually leads to much higher rates of commercialization of innovations from universities than in in some other countries where there's yes. a lot more of a, a feeling that oh, if we give you something, you should give it back. Right, and and then you were, I can't remember if you said this before or after we started recording, but you're talking about a, a, a sort of European tendency to to grow something up to a limited extent with the, with a quite immediate selling exit plan. Right, right. Whereas you look at something I don't know, pick a random one, Facebook, which started off so so goes the the sort of apocryphal story of just um, Zuckerberg and a few others just finding ways of people to hook up or whatever at university, and then just the scalability, the scaling of it. Mm -hmm. You know, so it became a bit big, but then bigger, 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 bigger. There always seems to be this infrastructure and the support 
and the investment and that sort of thing and, and you know the climate for a successful IPO whatever for these things to grow and grow and grow so and that presumably does require a certain kind of environment right and if you look at uh, one of the one of the more successful uh, european uh, initiated companies might be booking.com mm-hmm. um, it you know who, even though it's european they, they, thought they well they're based in amsterdam i think right okay but if they they did sell out um, and when I looked, I think they'd sold out for, uh, I might have this wrong, but around $5 billion, and, and they were worth 80 to 90 um, last time I, I, when, when I was writing the book. So, um, so stock market values fluctuate, obviously, mm. but the, the majority of the capital appreciation happened when there was the, uh, the U.S. ownership and not, not, the, uh, not the European one. So that's kind of just, just one observation um, so, so how do you, how do, how do you change things? Well, one one uh, point might be to, to take regulatory actions that ensure that the the large companies now are actually subject to, uh, to competition in one form or another um, that uh, that would allow uh, other companies to grow. Now, I'm not suggesting that those other companies would necessarily be European. I, I think there's. Uh, um, there, there may be some who would wish that's the case or argue that that will be the case, but I'm not so sure it would be true because unless you, you create that, that silicon fence that's going to really succeed, maybe the, the innovators will also come from the same place. It's very possible um, as the ones they're replacing. But, but having some, some real uh, uh, possibility for others to, to break in, very important. And then... Um, uh, and so that means regulatory changes, and 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 the European Union has moved towards regulatory changes. Uh, UK has introduced its new Digital Markets Unit uh, bill recently, and also has online harms bill. Um, and oh, don't get the, started on that. The US, yeah, the 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 the, uh, the US uh, may be going down some of these roads of regulation in the, in the near future, and it's really hard. They to look be like sure. they're getting more sensorious what's, over what's, the internet. What's in going what's going to happen there is less sure. But but the um, uh, I, I what the main point I want to make in the book is that regulation is not enough. It's just, it's it's probably a necessary condition. Not enough for or, what? So yeah, it's not enough to to lead to a. Uh, a fixing of of the problems that you might identify from this empire, of okay? of, of it being so, too much of it concentrated on too few hands, is that a problem? Uh, so I I I'm not um, an opponent of big companies by yeah. any means, right? But but I I would say uh, what um, what may be really important. Some so the big companies now have this huge huge advantage because we've moved towards network economies. Yeah, where 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 you and I both benefit from being on the same network. How is someone going to start a competitor totally. to that? Really, really difficult problem to solve. I'm not here to solve that today. But I, but I would suggest that in addition to regulatory changes, personal behavior is really has been at the root of the expansion of the digital companies and and of the concentration of power that they've had. And so personal what, what, behavior sorry. may be may be the sort of uh, things we have to think of. So it, what, what uh, is our changes. personal behavior? So one example would be, uh, you know, do you do you read a newspaper or do you get uh, do you get your news for free? Right. This this is a lot of people choose now to get all their news for free. 
uh, we could we can see that the quality varies tremendously yep. between sources. But when, when you're reading a newspaper every day, you can you know you'll probably end up getting a better quality of news than when you're mm. using it for free. But in many ways, and, the internet's been catastrophic for journalism. Yeah, because a hell of a lot of the revenue streams have disappeared. And, and so one th- one thing I, I would I would suggest is that people should uh, consider paying for their news in one way or another. Pay for your news. And this, this when my brother read the book, that's one of the things, first things he did. He started to, to pay for some news. And, um, and I think that's, that's one example of a concrete step that people can take. Another one is um, to, uh, to, to think about purchasing local when local has what you need. So instead of, um, instead of ordering something over the internet or over an app, uh, you know, you you actually go out uh, to a real store and you get the things that have been uh, obtained by the real store. It it's um, if if we don't do that sufficiently, we we the, there will be a continuation of what we've already seen, which is the decline in local neighborhoods and, and real stores. Well, I mean, I was going to ask you about that because I suppose a lot of people looking at maybe especially people who've grown up during this, but even people who sort of lived through it who are a bit older, like I'm guessing all of of us are, um, would say it's been a hugely beneficial thing, actually. You look back to the pre-internet era, the pre-Amazon era, you know, um, pre-mobile phones, you couldn't get books that you wanted in bookstores, you couldn't find things, you you order it now, it's there with you the next day. The prices of, you know, Amazon Prime's TV service, you're paying $10 a month or whatever, and you get free deliveries included. You go back to the days of satellite and cable, and it was, you know, it's hugely expensive. And I'm just wondering if people buy into the, I mean, Scott and I talk about the negative side of of having uh, too much power concentrated in a, you know, in the hands of these companies um, for all sorts of reasons. But I'm wondering whether the the average person really sort of appreciates it. And then you've got the, the difficulty of sort of getting them to buy into why they should be making the effort to, to go out to a, a local shop that might not even exist anymore. And when they get there, probably doesn't have what they want rather than ordering online. I just think it's kind of a tough, Yeah, it's a tough Let, ask. I mean, but... just, just think of one example, um, ordering ordering in food from restaurants. So so I'm not talking about the UK here uh, in this, this discussion. It's just in general. Uh, the the food delivery platforms are receiving uh, payments from us for the delivery side, usually the payments from customers, but they're also receiving a commission from the restaurants. That's the part we don't see. It's never talked about. Why mm. not? Um, why not? Uh, if if the restaurants are starting to have to pay, say a a fifteen percent, twenty percent commission, um, I don't know what the what the precise numbers will be. Because um, it, it, it varies from from country to country, from operator to operator, but but the restaurants are paying a commission. What do you think is going to happen to food prices if more and more people buy in this manner? Right? Can food will food prices stay the same or will they go up? And if 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 we buy with these hidden you know hidden commissions, hidden commissions that aren't disclosed, that aren't discussed. Uh, we're going to create an environment in which the prices we pay for things are actually going to go up. And we won't, people are not very conscious of that based on, you know, conversations I've had with a lot of folks. Um, and when they learn about what these commissions are that, that they're not seeing, um, some, some of them uh, change their behavior. Yes. So, and, yeah. and there is a slightly market distorting aspect to it because, I mean, there will have been 
you know, there's lots of examples. You get examples on Spotify of certain artists, like, I don't know, Taylor Swift or ACDC didn't want to go on there originally because they weren't happy with the rates. Or, or maybe some restaurants will not sign up with Just Eat or whatever because they don't fancy it. But then you get the impression that, that eventually the, the shit the amount of business they lose by not being on those platforms forces them to do it, which therefore gives those platforms an incredible, and they know it, so it gives them incredible power. They're like, they're going to fucking come here eventually. And so we're not going to negotiate with them. We're going to stick by our guns and, and we'll end up winning because of the, just the sheer inevitability of it all. So as you say, that, and the only way it's not inevitable is if people, yeah, I can completely relate to what you're saying about how, seduced we are by the convenience of it all i mean i think about the amount of times i must interact every day I mean, with google obviously i've got an android phone i use gmail i use google maps I'm trying to get ian to use google maps <laughs> or something like that uh it's just an ongoing joke about him getting lost because he won't use his map on his phone um and then amazon you know we probably get an amazon parcel arriving almost daily um and i could just get off my ass but i've got to say what ian was saying about bothering to go into the centre of town and then finding some shop and it doesn't have the stuff you want and then you go, why didn't I just fucking order it from Amazon? And I would have saved myself the time and hassle and would have got what I wanted. So it's a tough one that you're asking. It's, it's, it's a tough ask and I'm not trying to uh, I'm not trying to be a Luddite. I don't know if I am a Luddite or not. I don't, <laughs> I don't think so. I'm, no. But, but I, I'm... Because I, I, actually I'm a, I'm a huge fan of a lot of the potentials that have been created by the internet that never could have been done in any other way. Yeah. So I want to I emphasize that at the and beginning, the emphasize it again yeah. now. Uh, but there, there are ways that the process can be uh, more controlled and, and ways that, that we may be doing things we're not so conscious of. I, there's also, I mean, there's a huge problem of Internet addiction. Mm. Uh, internet, I, so I think the word addiction can be applied to the way that many people um, use the Internet. Um, and uh, and it's it's... Uh, if in for other products, if if there's addiction, we look for solutions to addiction. And I don't think there's been a very strong searching mm. for solutions to addiction. Well, like social media, I hear about so much, especially during the lockdowns. You know, yeah. just people getting addicted to what they call like doom scrolling and these sort of Twitter interactions with these random psychos that you that you wouldn't encounter or, in real life. Or you know, and I'm I'm the first to to claim being guilty. Perhaps I I, I could be at a dining dining table with with my family and I'm kind of curious about a question. I might look I might look at my phone and and I think that's that's yeah. that's. Yeah. Um, or when you're watching used, telly used the and then you also look at your phone at the same time, yeah. where where. 20 years ago, you'd have been happy enough. Well, I think it's TV great attention problems. And I know there's always a yeah. worry when a new technology comes along, oh, it's going to distract them. It's, uh, you know, there's they, 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 nobody's got an attention span these days. But I do feel this need that, because I think everybody has this, your, your instance in the restaurant of looking at your phone. I don't think there's a person who has a phone who doesn't do that. And yeah, yeah I mean, people now, you see um, leaving trains, walking down right. steps they, at the they, station they, and they, they, they've probably been on their phone all the time anyway and they still can't walk in a straight line down some steps without taking the phone when they look at you like you're that. a dick when you're in their it's way it's quite well. scary I, I mean I, one of the reasons I find it is because Scott's talking about me getting lost in a in town centres because I don't use a mapping tool that often mm. but I feel this dependency on this device is ridiculous mm. really for for you know not not. I mean that's one example a handy but, excuse but, but people needing to use it for all sorts of things, even to the extent of being told what music they should be listening to or what books right. they should be buying. Whereas previously you would have had a chat with somebody in the school corridor and they'd have said, oh, you should listen to this band called Bon Jovi because they're really cool. 
now you get told to listen to this because you listened to some, some metal so. music in the yeah. past. And I find that it, it doesn't take many steps beyond that before we start to get into this very dark world of some, you know, all-powerful all AI that really sort of runs our lives for us. And this sort of insistence on health apps and people sort of living their lives and putting calories into their body yeah. based on what a machine's but, telling you to do, I find quite sinister. Yeah, it is. And there's so much in what you've just said that could be unpacked. Uh, there's one one example is is the, the loss of concentration. I mean, I, there is a generation, I would say, that just based on my own observations and my children, excuse me, um, but uh, where there is a lot less ability to concentrate totally. than there used to be. How old are your kids? Yeah, between ten and nineteen. Right. So, so, so mine. And yeah. one of them, one of them does not have this problem. So just, to, I'm not going to say which one. <laughs> In case they listen. Um, I feel no. the same. But how can we be sure, though? How can, do we remember what it was like when we were kids? Like, because I felt I didn't have any focus either. I well, I, we don't I mean, mean, it, yeah. Okay, so maybe, I, I know maybe. It, it can only be worse, but yeah. how can we measure it? You know. Um, well, I think it's it's. Um, it's surely something that could be measured, but you probably need a study that goes back and looks at um, uh, how how well, it might look at how people behave when they don't have internet and how they behave when they do. Mm. Mm. Um, and I I kind of did that almost a experiment by accident with um, my kids when we moved internationally and we didn't have access to the internet for the first months in a in a new place just because it took forever right. to get it installed. And and their behavior changed, their ability to concentrate changed, and it was very fast actually, the change in their behavior. And and then when we ultimately came back to having the same kind of um, television and internet access that we had in the past, well, behavior went, yeah. it, it it changed back. So so, I, so my my kids are, are eighteen and sixteen, and and <laughs> so you know smartphones have been around since they were born, and we had you know a few stories of like my son just one day me giving him my smartphone to shut him up and then he suddenly spent 70 quid when he was about seven years old. And and Pierre's kids are much younger, so he's at that earlier stage, but I'm sure, Pierre, you can you, you can relate to that. It's so easy to shut your kids up by chucking a digital device at them. Mm. And so it's That's always... <laughs> you never do it, do you? Um, and so it's always a dilemma for parents, and I'm sure, you know, I, I feel it, you know, I mean... When I was a kid, you know, we just about had, like, computer games at home, sort of like first generation of things like Ataris and Commodore 64s and shit like that. Um, and I would just dial into them because I've always found computer games so much more engaging and immersive and interactive than TV. And so we're always going to gravitate towards the, the most instantly gratifying and instantly absorbing thing. Yeah, and and so this this affects willingness to read, I think, uh, yeah. Yeah. to quite a substantial extent. Um and and maybe that will change uh, as as kids grow older, but uh, but I think um, reading doesn't give you those same kinds of instant satisfaction sensations as you can get from but, from the internet. I don't think your Atari example is that good because I think one of the problems with 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 smartphones is if you were just going and playing a game on it solidly for four hours or or reading a book on it solidly for four hours or doing one thing, yeah, that's. That's an ability to concentrate to some extent. I mean, the games maybe not a, a good example, but I, I think what it is is no, actually people dipping into them and doing very um, flighty things. And, yeah. and it, it, my, my wife, she'll hate me for saying this if she watches this podcast, but I think she's really bad with the phone in the evenings. Like she does a day at work and will suggest watching a movie or something. 
And five minutes in, it's sort of, unless it's really compelling from the beginning, it's sort of lost her attention. And she's on her phone, but not really doing anything very worthwhile. Yeah, yeah. She's sort of looking at Flick, Facebook flicking posts around. or flicking through Instagram, which in itself is a service, I think, where the, the thing only appears for a few seconds and then disappears. It's, you know, it, it's almost yeah, well, about and, not just, having yeah, And one other that. thing I'll, I'll say on that, I, <laughs> I, back when I used to commute more and spend more time on crowded trains, I would sometimes look over the shoulder of people on their phones. Not deliberately, not in a creepy way, hopefully. But, you know, you just notice. Um, and I notice that women especially, I, I, I see these young women on these phones and the speed with which they were scrolling and oh flicking between things. It was just incredible. So, so did we like, even glance at that? Yeah, yeah and, and, and it's, you know, and, and I suppose an, an ultimate manifestation of what you were just describing with Instagram now is something like TikTok, where it's got two things about it um, that are seem to be symptomatic of what we're talking about. One is the fact that it's short video. It's meant to be ephemeral, meant to be fleeting. Uh, I was, I can't remember what the context was. I was chatting to someone about one time when I researched some TikTok and found out what was the most watched ever TikTok. And it's just this, what looks like a, a late teenage girl lip syncing to some song for 30 seconds. And just, that's it. Yeah. And yet somehow that was the biggest thing ever. And anyway, the, my point about it, I suppose, is, is this... That that seems to be a great example of the short attention span thing we're talking about. Over and above something like my, I still play computer games and I like them, but it's just not doing anything for longer than about thirty seconds. Well, the, I, I know the one effect geared I, towards. I think it's had on me is because I I read a lot. I make an effort to read and actual books, not even on a Kindle or anything like that. But if I don't have my phone with me. If I do have my phone with me and I'm reading, I do notice these days, occasionally I'm reaching for my phone and checking a text message or looking at my emails. Yeah. I mean, why am I doing this? Because I'm actually enjoying this book, but I can't I can't stay with with it for more yeah, than 10 yeah, pages yeah. without having to do that. I broke my phone at Christmas for a while. And it, it was actually, it. yeah, it's a long, different story. But but, it, but, it, but the two days I was be between having, not have, of not having a phone when I was sort of waiting for a yeah. replacement... It was actually quite good in a way. It's, I mean, people mm. go on these digital detox holidays, don't they? You hear about this, this sort of faddish thing to go and take all the kids' phones away and switch your own devices off and put them in a bag and mm -mm. take them into the woods somewhere and then you can't you can't have access to them. And I I kind of feel it's like a kind of well, nice idea. Well, there's quite like getting yeah. lost in a fiction book. Yeah. Well, it, but, it, but doing anything... And even, that's yeah, even be, better be, than, be, a, than a film. Playing like, chess or something. Or yeah, yeah. if you had a phone with you, you'd be... It's, it's almost as if it'd be really valuable to have... Uh, a, a, a way to teach people how to how to control themselves in this environment. Yeah. Because we don't want to suggest that um, I think that there should be uh, government controlling the the you know the the exact way that Instagram would work. Yeah. Uh, no. and, and right. And, and, but but it's uh, not for them to decide. It's not for them. It's it's for us. Uh, it's for us. And it, partly it's it's a lack of training. We've just kind of grown into this this way of being uh, without uh, conscious and it awareness that we're doing it. It can happen very fast. Right? Yeah. I yeah. mean, you know, it's easy to lose sight. I mean, we've just been reflecting on it. You know, we're, we're all slight different ages. I guess you must be around our age if you've got a 19 year old kid. Uh, unless you got started real young. Uh, but Pierre's uh, like half a generation younger. But we can all, um, you know, if we just think, what what were we doing 20 years ago? What were we doing in the turn of the millennium? The internet was was the next big thing then. And now in, in the space of a generation, it's absolutely integral to everyone's life. So it's incredibly fast pace of change. So I think a part of that, if this is one of the points you're trying to make, Sean, is 
we've got to catch up, just like regulators have got to catch up, and they're trying to, to some degree. We've got to catch up in terms of, okay, so we embrace these things. We shared everything on social media, and some people presumably got some regrets about the amount of stuff they shared on social media back in the day. Um, you know, we've given away our data to the likes of Facebook and Google in exchange for free stuff and convenient stuff. And do we now just stop and go, all right, okay, we got a bit carried away. Now we need to just dial it back a little bit. Is that part of what you're saying? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm almost saying that that in schools you can go to school and they'll they'll teach about woodworking, and, but they you know how much time are they going to spend teaching you how to how to use the internet yeah. in a sane way that's that's good for good for you good and good point. for society. It's 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 a kind of seems like a, a realm of where there's a lot potentially to do in the future. I, I wonder cool. whether uh, it's a sort of parental responsibility thing. Yes, you were saying, I agree. Because I think we've we've just kind of grown grown up and got used to it and started doing right. things and then and then thought to ourselves we're in, in some bad habits now. But, you know, in, whereas our parents used to say to us, don't watch video nasties, maybe in future people say don't don't use social media. Team. I mean, that's already happening. You hear stories about yeah, parents not allowing their, their kids to go anywhere near it. So but. individual responsibilities and, and uh, is, is core to a lot of the... Uh, approach of this book, yeah, yeah, and, and as, as I was just alluding to earlier, and Pierre perhaps jokingly implying he doesn't do, it's uh, it's incredibly tempting as a parent. Mm. It's just an instant shut up. It's like I used to call lollipops at a certain age for my kids. I used to call that shut up on a stick because they'd be whinging or crying or whatever, and you just chuck a lollipop at them, and then they shut up. It's a bit like a you know, it's like one step up from a dummy, isn't it? Um, and and digital stuff's another step forward. It's just another form of shut up. It shows probably how shitty my attitude to parenting was, but I think we can all relate to it if we admit it deep down. Yeah, that's true. But there is an enormous. There's also a lot of great learning that can happen yeah. uh, through through all of these media. So, just one example: I've got uh, uh, a child. He's um, he started becoming interested in chess uh, maybe six months ago, and he's learned so much mm. from. Uh, from the things he's been able to find on the internet, from from playing uh, chess on the internet, things that I could never have taught him, yeah. right? And and so yeah. that's that's a huge positive yeah. that's come about um, because of that particular interest uh, that the child developed. Totally. Uh, yeah. And and so it's really worth emphasizing the the, the need for for balance in all this. And um, that seems to be the, the sort you know, of closing doors is not the solution. Yeah, and that seems to be the ultimate message. We, we, I'm going to have to move on because there's loads of other stuff I want to pick your brains about. But um, without having done you the courtesy of actually reading your book before you came on the pod, uh, for which I apologise. Why apologize. would you do that? Why would you do that? <laughs> I, I'm going to I'm going to guess that 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 the essence of of one of your conclusions is this this need for moderation, this need to to just uh, acknowledge the environment we're in, and and just take stock. Yeah. So I've got 15, 15, a list of 15 things that we can all do. Okay. Uh, where if it's, it's organized by if you feel there's a problem uh, of the following sort, then here's some actions you can take. You know? Yeah, it's, good. It's, well, that sounds very, yeah, you need, you very need productive, practical, yeah. uh, practical uh, Cool. Conclusion. Well, I will read it, I promise you. So, right. so and maybe we'll get you back on when I eventually read it in about three years' time. <laughs> um, so I wanted to move on just because. Um, you know, competition and public policy and that sort of thing, so yep. broad area. I, I understand not just telecoms, but you seem to have spent a, a decent proportion of your time thinking about the telecom side of it. We had um, we had a little chat a few weeks ago um, prior to this, just to make sure that that, that we were going to have plenty to talk about on the pod, which obviously we concluded we did. Um, but I 
I, I sort of need your your reminder of some of the other ways in which we overlapped. I know we were talking about things like public policy as it affects telecom spectrum was one of them. So so maybe we should start there. I remember we we spoke about there was a there was a story that was breaking at the time we spoke and, and obviously is still a thing about I think is it is it the six gig band? Six gigahertz, right. Um, and there's some tension between the worlds of mobiles, cellular, and the worlds of Wi-Fi as to who should have some kind of priority access to that sort of thing. So if I could just tee that up, what, what, were, your, what were your thoughts on that particular matter? Maybe uh, there's, there's a debate that's very active. It's, it's hidden from public view to a large extent because it's quite technical and doesn't seem very interesting. But it's going to have huge impacts on us later on. And that's why I think it's worth talking about. Uh, there's, um, it's, it's really a, uh, uh, this, this six gigahertz spectrum is a, is a perfect example of how something really technically complex uh, can, can ultimately impact uh, a lot of products we might have in the future. So we all probably uh, both have mobile phones and we use Wi-Fi, right? Um, and, um, and in the, uh, the, the debate between these two is about how do they get more spectrum because there's expected to, to be a need for more movement of data probably yep. under both both types of services. Now one of one of my uh, long-standing beliefs has been that if you're moving really large quantities of data it's probably better to do that over wires as long as possible. Um, yeah. Rather than airwaves, airwaves can get uh, congested more easily. But but that's that's let's put that aside. That's that's something I, I bring to this uh, from the past. Um, the debate now has has come about because uh, some some companies and some countries are arguing that. One half of the six gigahertz, so the upper six gigahertz spectrum, should be put aside for uh, uh, could be really well used, let's say, by mobile telephone services. Um, and you know, one uh, one there, there are a number of regulatory proposals in the ITU that uh, that are uh, potentially coming up in the in the year ahead, which might really influence the way that spectrum is is allocated in the future across broad swathe of countries, and um, the the one one of the ideas uh, that's that's come about is well, if if we want to allocate this, let's have an auction. So let's let's see where the value really is, um, and and you know, as a general principle, I can understand that that type of argument for, for allocating resources. But here, here we're talking about allocating for mobile for, or allocating for Wi-Fi. Yeah. And, and this is a really um, a very specific policy decision where, uh, where there would be two uh, extremely different uses of the spectrum. And the types of bidders you would have yeah. in both cases are, are uh, really, really well, fundamentally different because yeah, you have a one industry really, really concentrated, yeah. the other one really disaggregated. Exactly. So, so, so I think I think an auction would be a shit idea. So so so, so the people who are advocating uh, probably for the for the uh, uh, wireless to have this uh, spectrum would be um, would be saying, Oh, let's have an auction. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, which sounds sounds technologically neutral. I don't think it's technologically it be won neutral by, at all. Won by mobile, obviously. It's it's like saying well, it, would, it would upend the Wi-Fi business model as well because yeah. it's all unlicensed at the so, moment. So there's I, that as well. Yeah, the yeah. whole the whole thing's based on it being unlicensed. And and, and if and if you're gonna and if it's going to remain unlicensed, why have an auction at all? But maybe we're treading on well, Sean's feet a bit. Here. No, Sorry, well, I, I don't think so. But the uh, there's there's a pretty strong feeling among many economists, and I have. I'm an economist, economics training, that that auctions are the best way to allocate um, goods where there's uncertainty about who should be running them. And, right. and, so I've, I've and, got some issues in the telecoms. And, and so, so I, I, think, I think that's um, uh, has it. It's it's appealing to say that you shouldn't that maybe we don't want to have government simply allocating spectrum mm. willy nilly uh, to oh you get some and, and that you could get be open some to corruption or, but, or misguided. But, but to then say uh, we should do the same for deciding between Wi-Fi and uh, um, cellular, that, that I think is a, is a big problem because of this con- the, 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 the likely incapacity of uh, so many disaggregated users to come together and form a bidding coalition that yeah. could seriously take on uh, mobile. Um, and I think, I think it's pretty unlikely that a coalition could be formed. <laughs> And so the key point is that even if the value to that coalition is in the end going to be higher than the value to mobile, mobile would have a likely win in the auction simply because of the difficulty totally. of bringing together the I think the that's bids. undeniable. And the other thing is if, if, if you are in, the, uh, in this disaggregated group uh, and you're thinking about the spectrum and, and what its value is to you, I think there's a lot of uncertainty about what that value is going to be in 10 years to different operators. So it's really hard for them to say now, okay, uh, it's going to be worth uh, $10 billion to me, so I'm willing to put $1 billion into a bid. Uh, right? It's, so, it, and, and this is one of the issues I have. This is a slight tangent, sorry, but before I f- forget it, one of the issues I have with auctions on the whole, as in the telecom space, is... I agree. If if the only bidders are all of roughly equal size and incentive structure, then then they do make sense in a pure economics way. Right. Whereas we we agree that Wi-Fi is completely disaggregated. There isn't a Wi-Fi coalition that can have a whip round and bid on behalf of a hundred different sort of disparate interest groups. But I also think there's something that intrinsically bothers me about government owning the fucking spectrum in the first place, this default, that it's the government's to auction and to r- receive the proceeds from that auction. That bothers me. And then, of course, the other thing about auctions is, while they are efficient in a pure economics way, they are also designed, I think, I mean, you correct me, you're the economist, they seem designed to elicit the highest possible price. Um, and so, so as a result, you get these auctions, which I still concede have many points in favour of them, but you get these auctions, let's say 3G, where you end up with the industry and then indirectly the consumers, the customers of the industry, a massive wealth exchange from the industry to the government to get hold of these bits of air. Um, and that just that just bothers me on I, the whole. I think there's something to be said for them, but I don't think it... I totally agree with your assessment on the Wi-Fi. I don't think it's an appropriate way to sort of work out who should win between Wi-Fi and cellular because they're two completely different services. Yeah. You know, one's Wi-Fi has always been about unlicensed spectrum disaggregation. You know, it's for largely free actually in a lot of cases. You know, you have your Wi-Fi service in your house, obviously, and you're paying a broadband uh, fee behind that. But you have municipal Wi-Fi. You have 
coffee shop Wi-Fi, which I've just been using earlier today. You, you know, it's, got a Wi-Fi it's, in this office. It, if you had a, a need, an expensive auction process, it would, it would completely change that. Um, it would have mm. to change the economics of that in some way. And it's not a. There's no sort of universal service obligations attached to, to Wi-Fi. It's not like you license it and say you need to cover this kind of area of land, which is one of the rationales for having an auction process with yeah. cellular is that these these licenses they're giving out when they're talking about covering the country are actually very valuable things. You want to give it to somebody who's going to make you know and make sure that they meet certain you know, they tick tick boxes. You know, yeah. you're, you're going to cover the Isle of Wight when you build your network, and if you don't do it by 2025, then you you lose your license. But so I think there's something to be said. For and I do get that there is a cost to managing these frequencies. So it's right that the government takes some money from thing. the process. This isn't it's a just a thing. That's the problem with it. Yeah. Um, I, well, I I think uh, yeah. I might so I might disagree with you on uh, part it. of this here uh, because it's so if if. If you don't want government to own it, do you want no one to own it? Do you want it to be completely unallocated? I think it's the sums involved that, that wind me up the most. The sums. So, yeah. so, so perhaps the government could uh, could require less for the spectrum when it distributes it. But then, um, how how is it? How does it finally? If there are going to be three operators and ten have made bids that yeah, are at the exactly. minimum requirement, how does that distribution? It's like playing paid? poker without money. You can't do it. It's, yeah. it's a rubbish game without betting. So I mean, yeah, no, I don't necessarily have an answer. Yeah, there are there are ways that that that. I mean, when spectrum cellular spectrum usually gets awarded, there are ways of doing it without having a, an auction process. Right. But, the, the trouble is some of the other, some of the other systems have their flaws as well. So I mean, do you want to do random allocation? You could do people well, who meet. Uh, yeah, well, you do what China does, which just gives gives it out to the same three companies. But then that sort of reinforces a, a barrier to entry, and um, you know it doesn't allow any opportunity at all. I mean, it's a difficult market anyway, regardless of the spectrum issue to to break yeah. into. But but the other the other way of doing it is on a a beauty contest basis where. Mm -hmm. Um, with Scandinavia. I, mean, I quite like that. You, you pay a fee and then you have to meet some ob obligations anyway and you have to put forward a proper business case and it gets assessed and it's not a it's So that's a more qualitative. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but uh, I, I quite like that. But I, I just, I totally agree with your um, scepticism about the Wi-Fi, uh, way of assessing Wi-Fi. I, th I find that very bizarre that that's even been proposed. And Yeah, So um, and, and so so I, I think policy makers should just be uh, evaluating where they think the greatest social use or benefit would be of, yeah. this, of the spectrum. And I think they're pretty high odds that that would be with, with Wi-Fi as opposed to Is mobile. That, do you have a position on it or are you remaining on, flappably on, neutral? On that? Uh, yeah, on I, where you'd rather the six gig ended up. I, well, I, I would rather it ends up on, uh, on Wi-Fi. I think uh, I'm inclined to uh, go with you on yeah. that. Um, because well, because of what we're saying, the greater utility. Well, it's we're going to get all John Stuart Mill It's also about not a very useful spectrum for cellular anyway. No, well, that's a really good point. I mean, we we I, chatted I, about in the last the, pod. The, the big problem that the cellular industry's got, I think, at the moment, is that it's run out of useful spectrum, which we, and we the last guest we had on, yeah, Neil McRae, who works for um, Juniper, Juniper Networks now, now he used to be a executive at BT, was saying um, one of the most interesting things he said last week was how much he admires T-Mobile's kind of approach in the US, where their, their whole thing was to sort of focus very much on low band at first, when they're rolling out 5G even, and the, the, the issue with spectrum is when you come down the spectrum bands into those lower ranges, it, it penetrates walls and it covers right. wide areas very well, but it doesn't give you a lot of spectrum, which makes it harder to mm -hmm. provide lots of bandwidth. But 
you don't really nobody's really using this bandwidth anyway this is the thing no one's really need in, ever been in need of this uh, oh, and that's another argument in favor of, so, of of wi-fi because um, if if higher band spectrum doesn't penetrate walls you're and, just sitting in a room yeah you're you're, you're not so, needing mobility so i suppose yeah. what you ideally want is this sort of dynamic like we have in this office yeah. like so in this office it's it's like a, a modern sort of glass yeah. covered building and, and as we learned from where we we're talking to tom bennett two weeks ago um that these glass buildings reflect electromagnetic radiation so make it shit for for um cellular stuff to get through so what you ultimately want is buildings like this with with some kind of exchange where they receive the cellular signal on the outside and convert it into wi-fi on the inside yeah. um but but he was there's even a problem with mid-band spectrum that 5g is being deployed in which is about three and a half gigahertz it, it's not you know, it's not very not great. good for coverage, actually, compared with um, the sort of sub gigahertz range, sub gigahertz ranges, and even the the stuff well, that's two gigahertz. Of, I mean, we've had eighteen hundreds been the decent stuff. Yeah, eighteen hundred was being used, which was always regarded as a sweet spot. If you go up to three and a half, and, and then they're saying that's rubbish. a sweet spot, it's not really a sweet spot. There's actually it's becoming, you know, it's taken a lot longer to roll out five G in Europe, I think, than it than than it did, did to, to roll out 4G because they were partly because I think they're relying on these high spectrum bands and you hear Ericsson running around and grumbling that nobody's buying enough mid-band radios but well, <laughs> why should they you know it's uh, if they if they don't see the business case in doing it and yeah I just I, I find the whole I think the cellular industry is in a in a position now where it's sort of run out of useful spectrum and but it it also hasn't fully occupied the spectrum that it has right so, so well it can argue this is the thing it can refarm in some very yeah. small geographic areas what it what it can do is um is also refarm some of those lower bands because these old technologies that have been used mm -hmm. with that like uh, i mean spe specifically 3g at the moment is being shut down at the moment even in lots of lots of countries 2g is going to be around for a bit longer mainly because there's still some sort of weird legacy services that still use it, like old vending machines, and mm. <laughs> um, and it's used for kind of roam, roaming. But I think the government target is for for two G to be phased out by 2031 or something. Is your point, Sean, that um, that, even, that with the with the mid band, it's not even? Are you talking about the five G rollout and sort of population coverage? Yeah, yeah, that that uh, um, uh, and and you and and. I mean, we're talking about making spectrum available for the future, and, and yeah. we have CEOs talking yeah. about the need to, to to just slow down the future and and make sure that what's already out there and been acquired can be fully, uh, you know, fully yeah, uh, paid for before yeah. before you expand I mean, to something else. Scott and I were at a six G event recently mm. um, because there's talk about what that will be, and I think one of the themes that we both cover when we came away from that and wrote about it is. A kind of lack of enthusiasm on the part of the telco operators as opposed to the equipment vendors who right. obviously want to sell a new generation of technology every few years for investing in something else and you know that nokia was up on stage and into digital talking very much about this um centimeter wave band that's between seven gigahertz and 15 gigahertz and um pitching that as the sweet spot for 6g well I mean, it's 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 use to me. It just seems like it'll be useless spectrum. I don't yeah. see. I, it might be good for doing um, factory automation in some areas or, or specific on-site hotspot services. Well, the only but need for not, more. The only need for more spectrum further up the um, the frequency range is just for fattening the pipe. Sorry, Dean. Um, 
But we always have to put a, a Dean comment in, don't we? Well, because something. I know a bugbear that the analogy of, of water pipes and, and like bandwidth, yeah. like, and so I've heard it enough times from him that I've, I've it become Pavlovian. I feel the need to apologise. <laughs> um, but you know, fattening the pipes such that we can get even bigger data rates. And you know, I said, and I think I got slightly, I got corrected by Neil on the last pod, and that's fair enough. I'll stand corrected. I said, you know, I thought four G had more or less solved that, and, and we're good for data rates. And and he's probably. I'm sure he's right to correct me in so much as, you know, we've always said we don't need more processing power, we don't need more RAM, we don't need more computing power, and then obviously we get more and we find a way of using it. So there'll always be a use for it. But as a hard pain point, 4G seemed to solve mobile, I'll still stand by this, seemed to solve Mm. mobile broadband broadly for most people. There's not many people thinking, oh, fuck, you know, I haven't got enough bandwidth. Obviously, if you're going to, if you're going to locally store a video and you want it to download in one second, then it would be great. Well, but on the whole, I think people are all right. Well, but, yeah, but I also remember Andrea Donner at Vodafone saying that some of their 4G sites had been at capacity or something when they were yeah. launching 5G. So there's an industry so there need. Is, there is an, I, I, I'm talking about an end, end user need for mobile, more bro, mobile broadband capacity. Well, then it becomes an end user need as well, though, doesn't it? Because if they can't use their services I because the so. pipes are full, then right, you're going to start enough. complaining about it. But, you, you, I mean, you don't see it the same way as a consumer. You just, you just think, why can't I get my service anymore but if that involves yeah. spectrum and, and this stuff then that's what has to happen so i'm being a bit yeah maybe i'm taking no, it to an extreme enough. but i still think these higher spectrum bands are just to me don't seem very commercially feasible to be used with cellular which even no. more reinforces the I mean, point they'd be, be handy for things like fixed wireless access or something like that yeah but not for phones on the go or, or you know i don't know um, we don't have to segue onto this now, but something we were chatting about um, immediately beforehand, mm. you were talking about coverage on trains. You know, there's certain environments that aren't particularly well served by cellular. And I I would have thought, I mean, I don't know actually whether the poor propagation characteristics of these higher frequencies applies to things that are moving, but presumably, what's it referred to? There's some kind of physics term of what a plane or a train is, as the tube. That, that that's not particularly receptive to well, your 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 Wi-Fi things inside the train. Yeah, yeah, no, but, uh, but, no, but we're talking get the about mobile cellular. signal from outside. So, oh, so you've got the two options, yeah. right? So I mean, I don't yeah, know. it's usually backhauled by mobile, but and then the Wi-Fi on the yeah. But I never use the train or. Wi-Fi. I use I, I tether to my phone when I'm on the train. Shit's well, the same. I'm because getting it's, a, because it's not very you're good. getting a buzziness. Yeah, somebody's phone near one in my pocket. Joey, put it on the floor. Yeah, sorry, persisting. Are we good now? Has yeah. it gone away? You mean you don't like okay, that so it's, it's of, in your ear? It's one of me and Sean then. Um, okay, um, Maybe some but before thing. I move us on onto that, um, I think when we were speaking about this six gigahertz thing, Sean, when, when we spoke on the phone before, or on Zoom, I should say, no one just has phone calls. We don't anymore. have, I didn't have a phone call. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was because Ofcom is mulling over what to do about it. Was that, do I, have I remembered that right? Whether whether to go for an auction, whether to go for a beauty contest, or whether to just dosh it out? Well, especially the European uh, Commission and the European okay. Union are, are Maybe it's that then. Uh, thinking about this. The UK has more of an established position, but the EU hasn't uh, established uh, its final position yet, to my knowledge, um, but may do so very shortly. And then right. there's going to be a meeting of the ITU in November that's coming up where there will be a lot more formal decisions taken. <clears throat> and that's the crunch point for this this particular question. And so what our assumption is that if they go for auction, it will be snapped up by mobile. So if, if the actual the decision in the ITU would be about whether the spectrum is designated as international mobile spectrum or not. 
Right. Um, and then if, if it becomes designated as international mobile, then that would open up the possibility of these auctions. I mm -hmm. think that's, that's the idea. Um, and, Do you uh, have any sense of which direction it might go in? Um, I, I think that there are, there are strong forces moving in both directions, and it's really hard uh, for me to predict. But, it, I mean, I, I think um, uh, it would be a shame if this spectrum doesn't, doesn't go to Wi-Fi because Wi-Fi has so much more flexibility um, in terms of uh, how it can be used, who can use it in the long run. And I think we're moving into you know, an environment where there's likely to be a lot of new products coming online in the next 10 years that will, that will just want spectrum and, and it's um this is a great way to make sure that they can get online it's, it's also it's a disaster for the cellular operators isn't it wi-fi really because yeah. i think about what my son's done over the last year in my son my son's at university in denver and um he's not got a he's not had a us phone while he's been there mm -hmm. he's basically just, just switched off his data and roaming and used campus Wi-Fi, and he very rarely leaves the campus because it's huge. And, and obviously, even if he wants to ring you up, and, he can do and a so call he on just WhatsApp. does calls on WhatsApp to us yeah. in the evening and to his friends in the UK, and uh, and has and has spent one year being able to do that, mm -hmm. and, uh, and therefore his usage charges have been zero, and it's just what he's paying on I the tower. I think you could largely. I could. I try to um, uh, sort of gameplay this in my mind whether I could exist just on Wi-Fi. Well, I, I did this in Austin, so we we do. Scott and I travel quite a bit for work and I went to Austin last year and we'll be doing with Pierre in a week and a half and I didn't want to use roaming at all over there or even get a package because it adds quite a bit on for a long distance mm -hmm. trip and I just thought I'll just rely on Wi-Fi and every restaurant you go to in Austin or hotel or conference venue has a Wi-Fi hotspot and they're all free well they were last year so unless they've changed it in 12 months you, you're able to do yeah. calls receive texts co you know contact you your colleagues there does remind yeah, me we yeah, were talking yeah. we were talking and about kids and a, an addiction up. earlier. One little cliche that I associate with kids is they go to someone's house or go to a restaurant and the first thing they go, Hello, little Johnny, good to see you again and they go, What's the Wi Fi password? Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's the first thing to ask. Yeah. <laughs> um such as such as their dependence on these things. So yeah, I think I think that will be interesting. I think we're the three of us are more or less in agreement on on the direction we'd like it to go. I do find it sort of Mildly interesting to imagine what direction Wi-Fi is going to go, because I think we can agree that Wi-Fi is not totally satisfactory mm -hmm. um, in terms of user experience. So like public Wi-Fi, filling in forms, all that sort of thing's a bit of a drag. And then, God, I mean, all us tech journalists have got stories about going to uh, a press event where the Wi-Fi can't handle the perfectly predictable thing that about 100 hacks are all going to get on the Wi-Fi and, and file their stories and, and all that sort of thing. So I suppose I, I suppose what I'm leading up to is I'd like to see an outcome whereby Wi-Fi gets this spectrum, if indeed it wants it and it would be useful. But if not coverage obligations, there's a little bit more structure around um, quality of service or something mm -hmm. like that with Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. But then maybe that would undermine, maybe the whole point of it is it's unlicensed and it's Wild West and anyone, you and I, could go off and make a Wi-Fi device tomorrow and and maybe that's part part of that area of innovation back to your first point talking about silicon valley perhaps it needs to be a bit wild west for that innovation to happen so i'm just i'm just sort of rambling and thinking out loud but i would like to see a little bit more quality of service and, and for it to be a bit easier to use public wi-fi i mean you have to i mean it's it's a fair question to ask about some of the economics of public wi-fi right so so that you do have um 
uh, a business or a public entity that's providing it to you, right? That that always is happening in the circumstance you're talking about. I'm I'm also suggesting there could be third parties who are just going to use that spectrum. It's going to be invisible to us. There's going to be a lot of usage that's invisible to us because of the Internet of Things and other, you know, devices talking to each other. And and so so that's also part of what is made possible by ensuring there's plenty of Wi-Fi spectrum available. I, in the terms of the quality of service, I mean, maybe this is, uh, I think that's really hard to handle. Yeah. Um, unless you complain. Indeed. So back to your individuals sort yeah. of voting with their feet or whatever right. type of thing. In fact, that's just reminding me before we move, because there's one new story I want to cover. And we've only got about half an hour or so left. But there were a couple of things, there were a couple of tangents from the, the more sort of big tech thing that we talked about um, at the top of of this recording that I forgot to mention that I'm going to quickly squeeze in just to pick your brains about. Um, two, I mean, they're, they're massive topics. So it's really unfair because we're only going to have about five minutes on each. Um, but one that concerns big tech and Europe is is this thing that, that they call, they frame as fair contribution, which is this concept that um, uh, big tech, i.e. especially in the form of subscription video on demand, people like yeah. Netflix, Amazon, um, whoever, whoever else we get it from, Apple now, Disney, and so on, they account for the vast majority of the bandwidth that's used over mobile, or any network for that matter, obviously fixed as well. So it, so. So European interest groups are arguing that they should chip in for the cost of building and maintaining those networks. And then the counter... Well, in other words, pay the operators. Pay the operators. So, uh, uh, some degree of, of wealth exchange from... Without having from, a stake in the business. From big tech to operators. <laughs> You're already getting a sense of where Ian is on this. <laughs> um, uh, and then, yeah, and, and often this is framed as a, as a push versus pull thing. So they're arguing that it's a push. They're basically that because these big tech companies are pushing this content onto the network and and, and uh, are the main reason why they need to invest in capacity. They should chip in. And other people, Ian, probably one of them, and I'm more sympathetic to the, Ian's position, would be the more pull argument, which is no, this is just demand by end users. End users want to stream on Netflix. Therefore, if there needs to be a financial consideration to compensate operators for this... The, this amount of data that's being used, it, sh it should be put onto the end users, not on the on big tech. So I'm just wondering, it's a big topic, whether this is something you think about, obviously you've written about big tech, not necessarily in this context, whether it's something you think about and whether you have any sympathy for one side or the other of that argument. Yeah, it's it's um, reminiscent to me of uh, the network neutrality arguments that we've heard in the past. Yeah, it's related. And, it's especially big in the States, those arguments. Yeah, yeah and... Um, and I, I think that, uh, you know, in terms of uh, how one would come out on this, it's it's probably a, an intense fact-based uh, exercise where you just look at what the numbers are, what the elasticities are for different different users, what type of quality will be offered in the presence of payment, uh, what type in the absence of payment. And there was always this option of... Uh, uh, you know, paying to to push out your um, your content further to the edge of the network, closer to the yeah. user, right? Yep. Um, that was something that a lot of the big operators actually wanted. Uh, the big uh, who were those those who were delivering content. Um, what what exactly um, is the special contribution 
of the um, the, the providers of the wireline or wireless service that gets you the product? I mean, that's a little bit less clear to me. Are they the uh, one thing I would ask about is are they the innovators who are creating these great new products that people Indeed. are wanting? Um, and if so, perhaps they should get some reward for that. Um, and if they're not doing the innovative work themselves, um, and they're being paid by uh, by the user in any case, are they proposing that they be paid the same amount by the user paid and then twice. some extra yeah. by the companies? Or are they going to reduce what they charge the user? Yeah. These would be all, all the questions. types of questions I would yeah, ask. Totally. And, and I, I like, I'd like those questions to be asked more because... Uh, I think it would expose some of the flaws in the whole yeah. debate. It does feel like a bit of special pleading. I, I don't totally lack sympathy for them, but, but it it does feel opportunistic. They're like, look, we're short of cash. I, it's a business model problem of their making, though. I mean, you said... Yeah, yeah, you, and, because and the, of unbeated. The trouble, I think, with... Um, it's particularly big in Europe because... I mean, this is a competition issue, actually, uh, and... Um, uh, mergers and acquisitions come into this. Mm. Um, the argument that Vittorio Colau fell back on, I think, I think I'm not misquoting him in his piece in the FT, was about low returns. You know, if you look at return on, on capital employed at the moment in mm. the UK, for instance, in the mobile market, it's lower than the weighted average cost of capital, which is not sustainable in, in, mm. a, in the long term. To which and one answer is, is tough shit. Uh, well, one answer might be tough shit, but then you're going to have those companies running into financial problems in the yeah. future. So, the I mean, that, that that argument was brought up as a reason for allowing the merger of um, Vodafone UK and 3 to go ahead, which is... Which is still to be announced. Which is still to be announced, but is... We reckon. Is, well, it's the FT's main story today was that, wasn't it? 15 billion. Oh, I didn't see. Yeah. Oh, shit, I missed that. Yeah. Um, so... What, they've announced it as a done deal or...? No, the 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 FT seems to have some uh, inside thing on it being a $15 billion um, and it's transaction. Close to... close to being right. news next week or something, probably. But, I mean, I think the regulatory permissions process would take a lot longer. But, you know, looking at some of the government comments on it, or the, or the CMA comments on it, whoever it was. It was the government, actually, wasn't it? came out with that paper about the wireless market where they were... That's right. It's part of their broader infrastructure. And talking fest. to some of the analysts, you feel it might go ahead, whereas in the past it perhaps wouldn't because there's always this concern about preserving four-player mobile markets. Mm -hmm. They seem to have... Well, that's true. That was another thing, wasn't looked it? At, looked at some of these returns figures and listened to that argument a bit more. Maybe there'd be some remedies in terms of spectrum allocations and having to do other things but you know allow it to go ahead the thing for me is if that does that however i feel about that i'm more sympathetic towards that argument than i am to the the fair share one you know i think the if they can't if they can't raise prices because of competition they can't make a return because of too much competition then you don't you don't deal with that by turning to somebody else in the supply chain and tax. going, "Oh, oh, come on, can yeah, you?" Yeah, and any time people you? start using the term like a... "fair," it's it's such a subjective and deliberately the, vague term. The, the that trouble then I is, smell a rat. If it does go ahead and it solves the um, return on investment problem, and they're saying they're implying it will, do they stop whinging then about fair share? Because that's been their main argument yeah, recently. Let's ask for more. It feels like blackmail, isn't it? They just keep asking for more <laughs> once well, they get but, a bit. But it undermines their arguments for fair contribution because it's all been based on we don't make a return on cap. We don't make a, right. a decent return. So I if see. you if you reduce the number of plays in the market and, and all of a sudden I you see. are, yeah, yeah. then how do you justify your arguments about fair contribution anymore? Yep. Um, so so go ahead, Sean. Yeah. So I I think fair is a word that that 
it needs definitions, and when definitions are put onto it, then one can form yeah. interpretations over. Yeah. I don't think they have good whatnot. definitions. Uh, they, <laughs> they um, um, but in terms of the fair contribution concept, uh, it's 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 absolutely right that that uh, one of the regulators' responsibilities is to make sure that companies can uh, you know can receive a return on their investment. Yeah, and and if the regulator doesn't make sure that's possible, then then they're not uh, fulfilling all of their tasks. Uh, but the the exact parameters of how they do that is is a big question, and whether companies are themselves um, making mistakes, it's not the regulator's job to fix mistakes that have yeah. been made by companies. Um, but uh, the the ensuring that there is. Um, uh, a, an appropriate level of return. It's kind of interesting in, in terms of four players and three players. What what happens? Yes, yeah, so I was just going right? to be about that before. Got to weigh off the consumer uh, costs and benefits in the short yeah. run against the network quality costs in the long run. Yeah, and uh, that's something that's pretty hard for for users to to do. I think. Um, yeah, but but if you look at the experience of going from three operators to four operators in France. Which is just the opposite direction of what we're talking about here. There was a huge consumer gain yeah. from that change when it occurred for for MNOs, um, but massive downward. Well, the well, same big, thing. Downward big, price pressure. Big movement in prices. Yeah, um, which um, really helped uh, a lot of consumers to be better off. Uh, one can only imagine that there would be a reverse type of effect in a movement from four operators yes. to three. Um, so, that's intuitive, so certainly. It's, and that's the concern, yeah. isn't it? I remember a few pods ago we were talking about this when when it seemed to be kicking off in the EU, where you had one champion who was more in favour of 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 keeping it at four as a as a minimum, who's um, Vestager, one of these big mm -hmm. commissioners right. that are incredibly powerful, and there's another guy called Breton who seems to be more in favour of consolidation, and there seems to be a little bit of a battle of wills. However, those play out in the corridors of Brussels. God knows. It's as opaque like everything else is there. But um but yeah, you can see arguments in favor in favor of both. But I I think the reason it came up then is is I'd written some stories that implied that the center of gravity was shifting a bit more towards three. Mm -hmm. I mean, it can feel arbitrary, three and four. Why aren't we talking about ten or twenty or one or two? But obviously once you get into competition, you know, I don't think anyone's everyone everyone knows Monopoly's bad. And so the next bad thing is a duopoly. And, but then we also know that you can't have 20 operators in any market because the, the economics just don't stack up. So it, it stands to reason that we'll end up, that, you know, the, the equilibrium will end up stabilizing around three or four. And so it's, it's, it seems arbitrary, but it's actually a really technical and interesting yeah. debate. And, and I suppose a, a triopoly, if there is such a thing, if there is such a word, if not, I've just invented it. Um, You'd like to think that there's just enough competition there where the other two competitors would keep a given player honest, but that's not very much competition, is it? You could easily, like, one of the reasons that I always cite as a duopoly as being bad is natural cartels could form spontaneously. They don't even need to conspire. They just need to keep an eye on each other. And if one person adjusts their prices, the other person goes, fuck it, just follow them. Because it's, it's just, it's made, it's made, sort of organic cartels really easily. I don't know if that's something that's consistent with prop economics rather than Scott reckons, mm. which is where this is coming from. 
Well, a lot of people think that cartels are easier to sustain with fewer fewer yeah, companies. Yeah, that's my involved, assumption, right? Uh, and the, the more companies you have uh, in a market, the harder it is for them to coordinate. It's also true that there have been cartels with more than ten companies involved. So, so sometimes you can have cartels that succeed with quite a few Fair players. Enough. And uh, a big question it becomes: uh, how much how much can you have a, a real uh, cartel with communication? That's illegal, or a cartel with uh, just implicit understandings that are never, uh, never communicated, where there's no formal agreement. Uh, that type of outcome is is particularly concerning, I think, because mm. there's no law being broken, but you might end up with many of the same pricing outcomes as you would in a real yeah, cartel. The, the sort of same same sort of pathologies. Yeah, and I'm not saying that's happening in mobile, by the way, at all. I'm just uh, making some general points here. Yeah. Totally. Um, just one other thing before we get onto one um, news story that I want to talk about um, while we're talking about big tech, and this is a complete tangent. You may not have a position on it, but one one thing that's quite trending, quite topical at the moment is AI. Specifically, when like ChatGPT came out, and that was really interesting, and, and everyone got to have a go on it, and it's and it is incredibly impressive. This 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 combination of natural language processing and and artificial intelligence, basically creating human-like engagements with with machines, and then six months after ChatGPT, which is based on a on a platform called GPT three, I think, uh, came out. They came out with GPT four, which is about a zillion times more powerful and can fucking just do all kinds of stuff. Um, and then suddenly, you just get the impression that AI is in this exponential phase of development where things are just getting a lot smarter, a lot more capable, a lot more quickly. And at the same time, there seems to be a bit of an arms race. You know, um, the OpenAI, which is behind um, ChatGPT, has got a lot of investment from Microsoft, and so and Google's been spending a lot of time on it. This is this is the overlap. This is the tenuous overlap with your your core area in, in your book. Yeah. And 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 you'll get other people, and then you got China obviously involved, and then, and then recently you had a, an open letter signed by Elon Musk, among others, who was an early um, investor in in OpenAI, going, I think we need to chill. We need to calm down a little bit. This is all getting a bit hectic. And before we know it, we're going to have Terminator slash uh, Matrix slash 2001 going on. I'm not sure which is my favorite paradigm because I quite like Hal. There's something about just that little red LED, that absolutely sort of featureless thing. Um, and just saying, I'm afraid that's not possible, Dave. There's something I quite like about that. Um but Terminator is the more evocative one with these sort of metal skeletons running around killing everyone. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to get back to the point, I, I, I guess the, the question I want to ask you is the public policy side. So there's calls for governments to get involved, and they are. We, every day we seem to see a thing where US or UK or EU or some other um, government or regulatory body is going, okay, we need to have a look at this. This, mm. is, this is all getting a bit out of control. Um, but I, it feels like the genie's completely out of the bottle already to me. So again, it's a massive topic, and I'm giving you no time at all. But you know, from a, perhaps a public policy perspective, do, do you have any thoughts on on the current sort of AI trend? Yeah, I'll just say one thing, um, which uh, might not answer your question at all. But but it's 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 that um, you know I think the Turing test was a great great kind of idea where uh, you could. You know, could could the computer be indistinguishable from from a human being in in exactly this kind of ChatGPT type of uh, uh, experience, and and the other 
um, AI bots. Um, and we're obviously getting a lot closer to passing the test than we were before, right? This is, I'm not a computer scientist, but I think this is intuitively clear to anyone who's been looking at this. But if you think about what it takes to create that human um, response, that, that, that human um, uh, intelligence and unpredictability, um, I like to, to I've, I've been talking to some people who've been saying the AI is getting better and better at using smaller quantities of data to be amazing. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge change. Yeah. Um, and and what that makes me think about is is the way we raise uh, children, for example. It's it's astonishing how quickly children learn and become users of language. And the reason it's astonishing is is if you think about how many words a child hears per day, and then how many days in a row they hear those words. They also see context, so they're getting visions and words together. But, but how many words simply would they hear per day? Um, you know, put a number on it. Okay. Oh, shit, I don't uh, know. Um, 10,000. Mm -hmm. 10,000? See, that's a big number, I think. No, I don't... I'd say like 300 max. Oh, so I think it might be more than 300 and less than a thousand. Were you saying different words or just the, the aggregate of just words? The, the ag okay. Well, the aggregate number of uh, words used in sentences. So it's, it's not, oh, right. yeah. not, uh, not different words. So, yeah, the, the yeah, same so word I'm might be 300. So you're going for 10,000. Yeah. Okay, so 10,000. So, so now you do the math. Okay, so one, in one year, how many words, how, how many, uh, you know, words would you hear used in phrases? Yeah. Um, and and so you get a kind number, and that's kind of, it's it's not that big a number in terms of, uh, uh, you know, megabytes and gigabytes, what you'd get in a year. Um, and kids become functional with language after how many years? Two, three, we'll start four. Start chatting, yeah, two four, or three, right? yeah. So, so, yeah, could give us so a actually, expert view on that. That, that, um, that's kind of, that's suggesting that maybe with the right kind of, AI um, uh, infrastructure behind the, the learning doesn't take that much input to produce a really amazing output. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's where, uh, and then, then, then you could ask, well, what if there were really a, a much larger input uh, than, than we have for kids? What's going to happen next? Very interesting question. Yeah, and, and back to the, the, the public policy thing, I just don't see what people can do because there's all this talk about introducing ethical frameworks and lots of things, but it's so huge. Right, there was one story I wrote where I noticed China had come out with an ethical framework, and it's basically a political framework. They go, you can do what you want with AI as long as it says that socialism is great and Xi Jinping's great. So typical, you know, totalitarian stuff. Um, and I don't see how that's sustainable, but I could see how it could be sustainable within um, a national border like China. But then broader ethics. So if it's political ethics, that's one thing. But broader ethics, like you get into these deep philosophical things like what is good you, know, you, you hear all these platitudes going well as long as it's for the good of mankind how the fuck do you define what the good f you know you get into that utilitarian stuff and so god knows i mean i don't know where it's going to go i don't think i think the genie's out of the bottle i think it's going to keep going i think we're going to get some scares i'm probably a little bit too twitchy about it i think we're probably much further away from terminator etc than I might believe, but I, I just my mind naturally extrapolates. I think, to these. I think that whole Terminator thing is like a bit of a distraction from the real problem. To be honest with you, which I is mean, what, well, one thing I've noticed recently is when people are talking about this, they're 
dismissing the likelihood of a Terminator-style AI um, as, and, and therefore we shouldn't be too worried. Uh, you know, one of the things about ChatGPT and GPT-4 is they're not general intelligence. They don't really, they're just yeah. machine learning. They don't know what they're doing, even though it seems like they do. Um, they don't understand causality or anything like that. So they're not like children in that sense. Mm. You know, you put it up against a seven-year-old on some simple tasks and you, you could work out the difference. And where GPT-4 hasn't advanced at all compared with GPT-3 is on that. It's just basically bombarding it with more information. So, and and then you get analysts who are skeptical of and sort of downplaying the threat from AI saying, this shows we shouldn't really be too worried about it because you know, the likelihood of having something that is a general AI that wants to take over the world and sit in our homes watching yeah. Blade Runner and cheering Rutger Hauer on is, is very unlikely, <laughs> you know. But I don't think that's the, the problem because it, it, if it's good enough to um, to do a lot of cognitive work, even even with those considerations, it, I mean, the, the jobs thing for me is the bigger concern. Yeah. Just general human have obsolescence. Goldman Sachs coming along and saying, as I think it did in March, there's about 300 million jobs at risk from generative AI. And this week, IBM went, we can probably get rid of about 30% yeah. of and our people. This isn't people. like the, the hand looms of the, you know, mm. of the kind of 18th, 19th century. It happened over a long, long period of time and played out and affected one industry. This is something that's happened within four months and has, you know, ramifications for people in our careers as well as all sorts of creative professions and white collar work, which is where a lot of people have been moving to with the whole, mm. like, you know, middle class, emergence of the middle class and education. Then I think that's really where we need to kind of. Worry about it, but I don't have an. I don't know what the answer. No, is and and the public. I'm certainly not expecting Sean to suddenly come up with a public policy answer. But it's definitely a public policy challenge. Absolutely, there's there's indisputably, and 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 one of the uh, concerns I'd have that it kind of comes back to some that we were talking about right at the beginning, is is about uh, uh, are people going to um, give over too much to this device and forget how to do things themselves? Mm. So you. You know how to use a map still, I think, yep. because you're you're not using your phone for everything. I have, to some extent, forgotten how to use uh, a paper map myself, map. Um, and and so if people start relying on on the the AI to do uh, writing for them, to do thinking for them, um, then I think there's a real uh, deep risk uh, that's not related to the the Terminator type. Uh, yeah. Um, visions, but but just to fundamentally how much we're capable of doing on our own. Yeah. Cool. All right. All right. So I'll give myself about 15 minutes max to talk about this one news story. It just happens every now and then as a journalist, especially a digital journalist, you write, you write stuff and you never know what's going to go viral and get you loads of reads. You write something you really put your back into and no one gives a toss. And then you write something that took you a couple of hours and it goes viral and say, fuck it, you've got to take the rough with the smooth. And I had one of the latter ones this week where I wrote um, a story about Malaysia um, and uh, and it was channelizing the FT. So the FT actually got hold of these a couple of letters sent by the US and the EU to the Malaysian government. So a quick bit of background on this story. Malaysia decided to create a, a national 5G network similar to NBN broadband network in, in Australia, but for mobile. Um, and they decided this, I think, a couple of years ago. And, you know, and the reasons behind creating a state-run national wholesale network are, are fairly 
are fairly obvious. Uh, there's efficiencies. You know, if you're just putting all your resources into one network, and then all the operators then um, use that as the wholesaler, you can see all sorts of efficiencies there. I think you know you've got places like South Korea where they've had government investment in networks, and it's massively benefited the country economically. Um, but the one contentious thing about this is the sole supplier to this network is Ericsson. Not that networks intrinsically, um, not that Ericsson's intrinsically um, contentious, just that it, it just went to one supplier. And it's obviously a big, I think it's like 11 billion, I can't even remember what currency, let's say dollars, win for, for Ericsson was. And, um, and the guy who used, the guy who was the opposition leader, who's now the prime minister at the time, I've I've got a link to an article in twenty in twenty twenty one. Just went oh I don't know about this and and someone had whispered in his ear that Huawei could have done the gig for less than half like five billion instead of eleven billion. Um, and so he's had a thing, he's had an issue with this from the start and has apparently been let's say a little bit pro Huawei. Um, and now he's in power. I think he won an election in, within the last year. And so now they're reviewing it and going, hold on a sec, we're going to have a look at this. Problem is this national networks, I think at about 60% population coverage already, aiming for 80% by the end of the year. So again, you can't put the genie back in the bottle there. There was some, in the original reporting that I covered, there was some, you know, these letters from the US and the EU going, you better not fuck with Ericsson. You've already, you know, you've got Congo back on your deal. Mm. And I thought, well, that's not your business. I mean, Ericsson, you know, if it wants to go into national law courts about about um, honouring contracts, that's one thing. It's not the business of governments to pay. But they're not talking it. about getting Ericsson out of that network. No, well, I'm leading in. up to that. Oh. Um, so initially, w- when I first covered it at the start of this week, it looked like that maybe was going to be it, which seemed weird. And that seemed to be one of the things that these letters... Um, you know, I mean, I can read out some some quotes from the letters. This is taken from FT, but this bloke called Brian McFeeters, which is a weird fucking name. Um, he's a U.S. ambassador to Malaysia. He goes, senior officials in Washington agree with my view that upending the existing model would undermine the competitiveness of new industries. Um, blah 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 blah, and and then also just talks about. Um, U.S. and other countries prioritize fair and transparent review process and contract sanctity. So both them and the EU mentioned things like contract sanctity. So they were obviously worried that they were going to try and get out of this Ericsson thing. Anyway, fast forward to today and yesterday where I wrote something up and and I I believe Robert wrote something for light reading. Um, Malaysia's come up with this bright idea of going, all right, then we'll just have another network, Mm. another national wholesale network, and we'll start on it next year once we've hit our 80% target on network number one. And the really interesting thing about this is I, you know, if if I went down to a Malaysian betting shop and they were offering any odds, I'd put my house on Huawei being, if not the primary, then the sole supplier for the second network. Because what I detect is sort of geopolitical forces. So, you know, there will have been... I've got no idea. I've got no insight into how the tendering process by which Ericsson won it. I'm sure it was totally meritocratic. I've got nothing to say about Ericsson on this. But there will have been forces ever since then. China will have been whispering in their ear going, well, how come Huawei didn't get a look? And then America's going, don't fucking listen to the Chinese. They're talking shit. And there's all this stuff going on. And 
and then and it was obvious from way back in 2011 that the then opposition leader and now prime minister had his reservations and, and seemed to be a bit pro Huawei. Otherwise, why would he cite them being half the price? And and so maybe he's just decided as a fudge, if if I can try and please both parties, we'll create two networks. And if my if my guess is right, two networks, one that's only Ericsson, i.e. for the purpose of this this story, US friendly, and one that's only Huawei, so for the purpose of this story, Chinese friendly, and then everyone's got to choose operators and possibly even subscribers, because let's say the operators use both, and they, for the purpose of transparency, go, look, you can go for the Yank one or the Chinese one. It just creates, for me, the interesting thing about it, and I don't know, you know, I know... You, um, Sean, coming into this, that you hadn't particularly read up on this. And I don't know if there's a, a broader public policy angle, but I just think it's interesting because it's like a, it's like a microcosm. It's like a, a proxy of the overall battle of wills that's going on between the the US sphere of influence and the Chinese sphere of influence. And we know there's like the chip battles and when they're trying to stop China getting hold of semiconductors and all that sort of thing. And I've got my views. I think America's slightly overplaying its hand on that one. I understand some of the strategic and perhaps even security reasons behind it, but I think it's it's increasingly asking too much of its allies. Um, but but the thing that really bothers me, I suppose, is that we're going to end up with this bifurcation of the whole telecoms and tech industry, where everyone, but down to the end user, down to you and me, have got to choose between uh, US Team USA and Team China on on all sorts of irrelevant things like which mobile network we use so i mean i mean i'll, I'll put it to you first Ian. you know you, you were asking about that is that the impression you got i know you didn't write it you were editing um, another writer's story but you know do you, do you think that my characterization of it seems like hyperbolic or does that seem realistic yeah i mean the, well the geopolitics just sort of ties into the broader trend that we've seen doesn't it you know i mean the the uk got leaned on and eventually decided to take Huawei out of network so it was yeah. being used there and it was and clearly as a result of US pressure yeah so I suppose it, to me anyway. this plays into the same thing and yeah I mean it's it's just another another bit of that story I suppose but I find the whole Malaysian setup kind of more interesting really because okay. just that it's so unique you know no one else in the world has done that national mobile network a national yeah. mobile house I think maybe Mexico did something similar but I don't, I'm not aware of any other country doing a neutral host national 5g network and it just seems like a bizarre idea in the first place I don't know why they why they why they're such an outlier on that why no you know um why they thought it was a, a good idea to do it because especially with a single you, vendor well, set up this. Yeah, I mean, a single vendor, I suppose, exacerbates the problem. But whether you've got a single vendor or whether it's a group of vendors doing it in a more sort of open ran way, you've still got a single supplier of the of the service that the operators are paying for, yeah, to the, to ride on that network. You've still got one network and one owner, which I presume is a government in this case. Yeah, although it's encouraging so equity a, stakes from the operators. Right, but it's still a single system. With yeah. one price, presumably for a, for capacity on it, or for a, a range of services, it's yeah. still one system. So, it's it's the monopoly problem to me. And um, you know, it's it, I know it's been done in the fixed line world with NBN and and and. But that NBN's been full of but, problems, isn't it? But I just don't. Yeah, it just didn't, doesn't seem like a. I, I think the the move to have another network is a sensible one because I think you need more than one five G network. One, but what if it ended up mobile network? What if it country. ended up being? 
an entirely Huawei network? Do you anticipate... I can give a shit who builds it. I just no. think they need more than one network. No, that's fine. I, I completely concede that point. But do you anticipate the dynamic that I was extrapolating to of people almost having to choose between US-friendly and Chinese-friendly Well, I guess if network. they build it and, they, and then the operators aren't going to be thinking about who they use because that's a, that's a government-level decision, isn't it? The government's either going to wind up the US and the EU by allowing Huawei to do it or yeah. they're not. And then what goes on at a country level, the operators do, is not, you know... What, if, but what if, if all Malaysia the operators- has sanctions imposed on it because it takes the decision to allow Huawei to build a network then that's something that affects Malaysia generally. I don't think... But it's still politicised. Let's say say my assumption's correct and the second network, it runs on Huawei kit. Yeah. And the operators decide to go with that because maybe there are some economic dynamics in it, like it's cheaper. Then suddenly the whole of Malaysia, even though it's got this... It's spent all this money on this Ericsson network, no one's fucking using it. Well, I don't... if it's if it's that I mean if there's that much of a difference in the costs that's not played out in markets where privately no. owned operators have used Huawei as opposed to using Ericsson you don't find that the service that you're paying is a consumer is no, half as much so I don't see that happening they'd have to be they'd have to be able to compete against one another if one has business model problems in the future because of its suppliers then hmm. then that's gonna that's gonna that's gonna have to be addressed obviously but. Um, I just think it's that's a government level thing. They'll either do it and, and end up not getting sole fighter jets that they need because they've done yeah. it or whatever, or not allowed. Or they'll in on some spying you know, yeah, network. But, but, but in terms of what what it means at a country level, I don't think any service provider that's using those networks is going to have to think about it. That's a, okay. that's an issue for right. the government. Fair and, yeah. So, uh, Sean, you've got five minutes <laughs> on this massive topic that you know fuck all about before this podcast. But I mean, you know, you pick whatever angle you want. I just think it's interesting the the dynamics the the concept of this national monopoly the fact that they now seem to have been pressured to some degree into creating a national duopoly. Do you you know do you have any thoughts of, on on this story as I've just thrown it at you? Yeah, I'm not going to comment on your story directly, but okay. but I will say it it's um the the underlying um uh, kind of geopolitics of what you're suggesting is very consistent with the idea of an empire, right? Operating going full circle, and, back to yeah, book. going full circle back to the book, uh, internet empire, and and uh, and I think it was remarkable in the U.S. Uh, a, a couple of years ago to see, well, a few years ago now, to see the U.S. president talking about requiring the uh, dismantling of a major successful internet product that was owned. By uh, by competing um, internet country, so TikTok, TikTok yeah. and China. Um, just just when have we seen actions like that at such a high level yeah. to try and take apart companies? And why would you do that unless you know part of it, it may be maybe a security concern, but part of it uh, may may simply be they're trying to uh, maintain. The, the sort of U.S. dominance in this space that has been so good for them in the long run. And so they take these occasional actions that are really visible as a government, while most of the actions, I would say, are pretty um, uh, are less visible, but more to do with maintaining a good environment for growth of, of those mm. kinds of, of Internet companies. I, th- I think on the cost thing, you know, you're saying one could be a lot cheaper. I think Huawei is more likely to have well, technology problems, which could lead to cost problems than what than Ericsson is anyway. So, what, they look like to have technology problems because of the chip stuff. Because they can't get access to five nanometer chips, and those are yep. now going into base stations. So, if this is a newly built network, then 
Yeah, I think that's a good point. That's a good point. And they're, they're going to have to consider that because if my well, assumptions are correct, that this second network is designed to placate China, which is leaning on Malaysia, which is what my gut feel is. Yeah. And therefore, the only way they're going to really placate China is by having some combination of Huawei ZT or maybe some other Chinese vendor that doesn't occur to me involved. Then yes, they're going to store up their problem that you described. Yeah, I mean that was never generated by America two or three years said. ago because yeah, yeah. they didn't have that situation and and those sorts of chips weren't being used in in uh, network equipment. But but mm. it is now. So if it's new, newly built stuff, then that that's going to be an issue for them. And why wouldn't it be? I would, I would think. Yeah. So yeah, I, so I'm grateful, I'm, and I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap it up here because uh, we've all got shit to do. Um, I'm grateful as a journalist. These these sorts of stories, for me, speaking only for myself is what interests me as a journalist. Just there's so many little moving parts. Like just one little bit, um what is it? Like within the story I wrote today, it turns out GSMA <laughs> has been lobbying against that state network. I mean, what the fuck is GMA, GSMA doing getting involved? But but some geezer, what's his name? Um <coughs> from GSMA, I linked to the story. Julian Gorman. Head of Asia Pacific for GSMA has just come out and gone. Yeah, no, nah, you need you need more vendors involved, and I just think I think it's slightly weird and incongruous for him to be speaking out. And then there is a one of the operators. You, so you know you were asking about ownership of this um, of this uh, digital national um, Buhda. Do you pronounce Buhda? BHD. <laughs> Just, just uh, use the initials. Yeah, B- DMB. There we go. Um, they were going to. They actually own two. This is a, a holding company that owns two other ones. They're called Cellcom Digi Bahuda. Maybe the Bahuda means company or something. Anyway, forget. Um, and it owns Digi Telecommunications and something called um, Cellcom. And they were going to buy twelve and a half percent each, so twenty five percent in total of this um, DMB. And then when this news came out about the second one, they just went, fuck it, we're not going to buy 25% anymore. We're, we're going to look at the second one. And so it, there's so many little moving parts, and then you wonder whether Cellcom's getting getting its neck breathed down by China or the US or both. I mean, I don't approve of it. In my in my, in my concluding paragraph to the story I wrote today, I said, uh, Malaysia's set to become symbolic of the dynamic being imposed on telecoms and technology industries by a geopolitical path- battle of wills between the US and China. This may mark the point in history when we acknowledge the bifurcation of the technology world into US-approved and China-approved ecosystems. How ridiculous that would be. So that's my position on the overall thing. However, as a journalist that wants to write juicy stories, I'm totally in favour of it because this stuff looks like it's going to run and run. And I can't wait to see what happens. And, and if I'm right, and this turns out to be a, a 100% Huawei network, that would be a massive story and really interesting. So I think I'll wrap it up there because Ian's about to, got to do an interview. And we've taken up two hours of Sean's time, plus of Sean's time already. Thank you very much, Sean. It's great to chat to you. Great pleasure to be here. Thank yeah, you. and, um, you know, um, if if stuff comes up in the future, certainly that's... It, that's core or adjacent to your to your sort of academic interests then it'd be great to have you back on to to plow through those as well thank you and uh and here's his book so yeah i'll wrap it up there thanks a lot for listening and make sure you join us for the next one